Hi, good morning and welcome. This is Seek Sustainable Japan. And we are talking about organic farming, growing your own food. And we have two guests today. One is having technical difficulty, but we have 50% of our guest speakers today. Thanks so much for joining again, Chuck. Thanks for having me, Joe. I'm always glad to be a part of your, your program. Now, we are hoping that John is going to be able to log in and join us soon. Um, but let's start with you. I, I had a recent conversation not too long ago with you, um, mm -hmm. but you did a TEDx talk recently and you describe yourself as a typical American, Mr. Average American, burgers and fries, and now you are an organic farmer. How right. did that happen? Yeah, yeah. It took about 10 years of growing my own food and having such a surplus of it that I had to eat my own vegetables every meal, uh, every day. And uh, it changed me from the inside out, really. I think uh, it's kind of that whole body sort of feeling of, wow, I have so much more energy now. I have less of these tiredness and problems and all this other stuff. And I don't know. It's just almost addictive. You know, it's kind of like caffeine. It's like once you have a taste of it, you want it again and again. And it's once you feel that good. He made it. Thanks so much for joining, John. So glad to see you. Nice to see you right here. Hang on. So, yeah. No worries. Yeah, so, Joey, it was just kind of a natural transformation. I mean, being addicted to wanting to be outside in nature and working my body and then eating these vegetables, it just became a part of my natural process. And uh, I'm so lucky and I'm so glad it happened because I'm so much healthier now and I feel so much better about myself, too. So. That's awesome. I love that idea that you were talking about in the TEDx talk about coming at growing your own food from different angles. And I think this is something you and John both understand as educators and farming advocates in the city as well as in the countryside. Um, so thinking about it as a way to be healthy, be outside and be healthy, a way to beautify your surroundings, right? Like having all these different motivations to start growing your own food. Can you talk about that a little bit, Chuck? Sure, and, and I'm sure John would, would as well. I mean, what, what I'm doing is out, out in nature, in the soil, everything else, and John's in the city in containers or in small beds. But I think essentially we're, we're approaching it from a lot of different angles. Of course, it's wonderful to have a hobby. It's wonderful to move your body and exercise a little bit and to create your own food. But the real added bonus, I think, for both of us is probably giving, you know, handing it down, taking it from one generation to the next and enabling other people to learn these things, to carry that on forward. Because this is this is stuff that we've been doing for 10,000 years as far as, you know, as far as I know, the, the Fertile Crescent being the, the birth of modern agriculture, if you will that it's always been passed down, not just the knowledge, but the seeds and everything else. Um, this is something that we've lost contact with. And getting back in contact with that is something that really makes you feel sustainable to your core because you realize, wow, this is the necessity of life. This food, this, this propagation of the species is dependent upon food. So it's, it's a really wonderful thing to be a part of. 
Yeah, wonderful. Uh, John, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because you have also educated children and adults uh, virtually as well as in person in the city, getting people to grow food on their balconies. I mean, what what have you found is the best motivation to get people started? Oh, um, 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 the best sort of motivation to get people started is, um, um, to my mind, it's uh, um, depends on um, who you're really talking to, and I've uh, um, found personally that if I'm talking to schools, um, there's a lot of kids um, these days who have um, uh, food-related allergies, um, and they're sort of basically getting those from food, um, and the chemicals that is the food that they consume. So a big deal for many parents to sort out what kind of food that they feed their kids so that the kids will uh, stay as healthy as possible. So if I'm talking to schools and parents and I basically talk about the, um, the health benefits of, of growing your own um, uh, food without chemicals, but then there's a whole um, different group of uh, people that we're a core part of, which is basically those who are um, keen to do something for the planet and to create a more sustainable uh, society. And um, growing your own food without chemicals is a really, really good way to do that. Because, um, like Chuck was saying, it's what we've been doing for for so many, uh, basically hundreds, thousands of like years now, and it's critical uh, to not just our personal health and our and our community health, but our survival as a species. It comes down to the simple fact that is our uh, biosphere going to be able to sustain us for the next X thousand years? Um, yeah. So yeah. Um, um, motivation is basically uh, personal health and community and planetary uh, sustainability are key. Um, also, uh, when it comes to growing your own food, there's a whole lot of people who are concerned about cost. Um, and if you have a packet of um, seeds, like something like this one here, this is way cheaper, a way cheaper way to produce food than if you actually um, purchase food from a supermarket. <clears throat> Yeah. Um, yeah, and also, yeah, there's uh, things like um, uh, taste. Um, if you grow your own food without chemicals, it will taste better, much better than commercially produced food. So there's a whole range of different uh, motivations, and I personally find I'm uh, motivated by all of them. Um, the taste, the lower cost, um, the health benefits, and the fact that if I teach people how to grow food and they teach others, they can motivate other people to help us all collectively create a cleaner and more healthy uh, society. Definitely. And I know both of you guys are fathers. Um, did having children uh, kind of motivate you yourself to get your kids out there growing their own food as, as well as something you often hear parents talk about uh, to get their kids to grow their own vegetables when they're picky eaters? Have you found that with kids? If you get them to grow their own food, they're less picky because they're excited to eat what they grow? Uh, Jeff? Oh, go ahead, John. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah um, I've um, personally found with both my kids, um, when they pick the first uh, tomatoes and cucumbers of the season, they go down really, really well. Um, and I've um, found personally that, um, that typically kids aren't really keen on, on green salad type vegetables, but if they're tasty, they will like them. And, um, and uh, vegetables are going to be more tasty if they're grown without chemicals. 
So by doing something, so by doing something good uh, for the environment by not using chemicals during the food growing process, we'll naturally produce tastier food that our kids will like. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, and um, like you said about um, um about becoming fathers, um, no. Um, one thing that really scared me many years ago, like before my wife and I had our first kid, was I read some news about um, a woman's uh, breast milk in the States, this was, containing a whole shopping list of these terrible chemicals, including flame retardant. And that scared the crap out of me personally, because I thought, right, there's um, um, new mothers who are doing one of the most loving things for their new babies by breastfeeding them. Um, uh, milk containing chemicals, so they're actually poisoning their um, their newborns. And then I thought, hey, something's seriously, seriously, seriously wrong here. That if um, a, a woman's breast milk contains chemicals, where's uh, uh, where do those chemicals come from? And it didn't take long to work out that many of those chemicals come from food. And so what I found is that many uh, new mothers. And when they become pregnant, they think, oh, I've got to start eating organic food now. It's a bit late. They should be really be thinking about that years before because all those chemicals from the food um, build up in our bodies and stay there. Well, I always think, isn't it, young people are so lucky now to have all this information that it seems really <laughs> a lot more clear now for young people than it did when we were were kids, perhaps. Oh, for sure, um, for sure. I just want to address one comment in the in the comment section right now. Someone on YouTube saying, "Will this presentation be recorded for later viewing?" Absolutely, you can find it right here at the same link anytime. Please uh, go go to work, do whatever you have to do, come back and watch it later. No problem. Uh, Chuck, do you want to talk about that as a parent or as an educator of small children and and how you? got started or your impression from that question? Yeah, um, I started, it's, it's, I don't know if it's a coincidence, it's hard to remember back that far. It was about 12 years ago, I really started growing and that's about the time my wife got pregnant. So I think I was partly motivated by that, but it was, I started farming by accident and I tell the story ad nauseum, so I'm not gonna bore anybody, but I just wanted to spend time in nature and build a log cabin and it didn't work out. So I started gardening to have an excuse to be out there. And so it wasn't something I thought about, but as the baby was born and as I was spending more time doing it, and as I started eating the vegetables, the process became very clear that, wow, I, I wanted to have a log cabin for my family to go to. Like I had a similar sort of situation when I was a kid, but it turned into instead, well, that, because I do have a small mountain house, but I have this source of something that's much more important, that's every day, um, that's building us from the inside out. And my son, <laughs> I mean, I brought home Brussels sprouts. They're tough to grow, by the way. Um, for me, anyway, I'm not that great. Uh, monkeys took care of a lot of them, and insects love them as well. But I was able to get some just last winter, and I brought them home, and I just boiled them in salt water. That's it for three or four minutes, took him out. I said, Junior, try one of these. And he does he's like, oh, these are really good. And I'm like, Brussels sprouts has got to be like the, the, the demon for any child growing up when I was a kid. It's like Brussels sprouts. Oh my God, these are for fighting with or you know, giving to the dog or something like, no way you're going to eat them. And his favorite vegetable is broccoli, um, if it's my broccoli. So he knows 
already what's different and he looks forward to it and he sees it in the basket. He says, Oh, I want to eat that. Um, I mean, he's a typical 11 year old. Now he, he, he eats whatever he wants, but when you put the vegetables on his plate, they're gone. They're really gone. So yeah. uh, my wife has a lot to do with that. I can't take full credit. She's a wonderful cook and terrific mother. So, but yes, knowing that's a part of the, his diet is very rewarding. And he comes out and helps with the farm since he was three. And at three, he was just kind of fiddling around, pulling on some things. But now he'll work. He'll, he will actually work. I'll set him to work and he will do it. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's, that's worth money in the bank for me because he's getting that experience. He's helping out. And he's, he, you know, whether he, he turns 16 and hates me and spray paints, pictures of me all over the wall when he's 21 he'll come back full circle i think and he'll come back to eating organic or vegetables or trying to work on a farm and i just got a new volunteer a japanese boy who's 20 and he's like well i, I want to just come out and help I, my grandfather when i was young was a farmer and i just remember that i want to just be out there and i'm like absolutely absolutely that's what it's all about so it's, it's, it's planting, we plant, John and I plant seeds, just like you, Joe, we plant seeds in people all the time, hoping that they'll grow. And it takes time oftentimes, but, you know, you put it out there and you give them a good environment to, to, to kind of germinate. And I think good things happen. I think so. Absolutely. I talked to a woman now, Fukuoka, who's starting to do organic farming workshops in Hiroshima in the countryside. And she said some of the most common questions are, can you grow vegetables without chemicals? Don't you need the chemical? Like they're really even the basic level of understanding is just not really there. Now, one of the motivations, we were talking about motivations for organic farming earlier. One of the motivations is, of course, food security. Now, John, you have this great idea, um, one of the things that you use in your workshops about having food where you are. The whole idea of growing food in the cities, growing food on your roof, growing food on the roof of the supermarket, to have that food security aspect as a motivation. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? And the uh, and what's the key thing that I got into, um, and the key reason that I got into um, growing my own food in the city during the first place, uh, basically uh, ten years ago, uh, two uh, thousand um, eleven, when the uh, the Tohoku earthquake hit. Um, that was uh, two and a half weeks after the a, a deadly quake hit Christchurch, New Zealand, close to where I'm from. And those two quakes, it just sort of really made me think, right, um, that if a quake hits Tokyo of that kind of magnitude, and where would food come from? And then I just thought that, okay, um, it would be a really good idea to have a, a close-to-home food source, basically growing food at home. And that's where the whole concept came from. Um, basically because I thought that if there was a massive quake and lots of uh, local um, supermarkets got destroyed and roads got blocked so that f uh, food delivery trucks couldn't actually get to supermarkets, <clears throat> and people in big cities like me would be screwed, <laughs> honestly. There would just be no food supplies. Um, so that just sort of really, really made me think that it would be smart to have a food supply at home. And that was the trigger for it all. And then I just thought, and then I um, uh, started renting a, a community garden patch nearby and took my daughter there. And f and I taught her how to um, sow seeds. And she picked it up and just like that, bang, just like that. And then I thought, hey, I can teach kids. So I contacted 
a local school. And that's where my whole 10 year um, urban farming career started when I basically got into teaching kids to do the same thing, to actually, number one, to realize that it's possible to grow food in the city and then to sort of gradually expand their thinking. And one of the key concepts that I teach is that almost any kind of uh, food, uh, vegetable and herb and fruit that can be grown in the countryside, including rice, can be grown here um, in the city. Um, we can grow pretty much everything that the, um, that the countryside farmers like Chuck can grow in the city. Um, but not many people, I think, sort of really would even think about that because they all think they all just go to the supermarket and that's where they see food. But if you grow your own food, your whole world expands. And and by growing food in the city, um, you have to get creative and sort of think, right, there's not much space here, so where can I grow food? Maybe the rooftop, maybe the wall, maybe the fence, maybe the gate. There's a whole lot of different ways and places that we can grow food. And it makes you really creative, which is great. It makes it more fun. Yeah, awesome. <clears throat> I love that. And Chuck, you've you've always grown in the ground. Uh, one of John's uh, big things, of course, on a rooftop where you're not in soil is using the raised beds. Do you use raised beds as well in your farms, Chuck? Yes, I do. Yeah, I think almost all organic farmers would, would say they use raised beds because it's it's just so much more efficient. It's so much more efficient. But actually, to go back, um, I did start in containers. My first, uh, my first attempts were jalapeno peppers mm -hmm. and uh, some tomatoes and, and bell peppers and herbs and carrots and containers. Um, but that was 15 years ago uh, when I didn't have any soil. And then one of my students at my English school came along and said, oh, I see you're growing stuff. My husband's a retired and he's got a little garden. He could probably rent you one strip. And it was just down the road. So I did it for a year. And that was a precursor to starting my garden in, uh, in the mountains. So, yeah. Yeah. John, you, you talk about the community mm -hmm. gardens. Uh, you mm -hmm. have this great graphic uh, where you, you talk about the cost and the oh, benefit. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Can you tell yeah. us about the community gardens in yeah. Tokyo? Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, um, depending where you live, there either will or won't be community, uh, community garden plots. And where my family lives in North Tokyo, we're really lucky. Our town's got nearly 40 community uh, garden plots, and um, and they're basically rented out by the plot. So one plot is approximately three metres wide by five metres long. And you pay uh, 5,500 yen for ten, to rent it for 10 months. And that plot is slightly wider than one standard car parking space, right? And when my wife was a girl, um, her father used to rent, used to use these, but um, they were free then. They they were just basically handed out free to people uh, that wanted to use them. But now they charge them. Um, to give you some idea of the numbers, um, on a good year, I grow about twenty-five to thirty thousand yen worth of uh, food in my community garden, and I pay. Um, 5,500 yen to rent the plot to do that. So it it, it, it um, saves money and it's really local and I don't use chemicals, so it's, it's all good. And um, and yes, um, and growing food in the ground, um, food will naturally grow to its largest size um, because the roots have more space to grow compared to if you're growing in, in a pot or container. It's just the best way to go. It really is. And where I come from in, in 
Auckland, um, a lot of people have their own gardens at home, so they don't need community gardens so much. But over here in Tokyo, most people have next to no exposed soil at all, um, unless you're like really rich and have a lawn or some space where you can actually dig up a garden. So a community garden is the next best thing. And after that, I'd say a rooftop garden. I'm using raised gardens like Chuck was just talking about. So there's a lot of potential. Even in a place that's as covered in concrete as Tokyo is, there's a huge amount of potential and space to grow your own food. I think that's so wonderful for people to realize. Uh, mm. Tokyo is a concrete jungle, but if you utilize the roof, if you utilize these community gardens, you can find enough places to grow your own food. I just want to give a shout out to Elizabeth Ann, who has joined us from Facebook. It's great to have kids appreciate great veggies at such a young age. This training should really start from home. Well done. Thanks so much um, for commenting. Can I just make a quick point about this, Joy? Um, and what Chuck was talking about, about uh, training kids, um, I found a really interesting thing, and that's basically that about 95% of my um, urban farming clients are people who um, either their parents or their grandparents are or were gardeners. So what I'm thinking is happening here is that um, is the, the vast majority of my clients who pay me to provide um, services when they were younger they were they saw their parents or their grandparents gardening and i think what's happened is that that exposure to their parents grandparents gardening it gave the um, these people as as kids the impression and the clear idea that gardening is a cool thing to do and it grows fruit because there it is right there there's some cabbages that my granddad's growing and yet these people themselves they never actually learned it and i'm one of them my mum I was a gardener. All my grandparents were gardeners. No one taught me anything. I didn't. Um, none of my family taught me gardening at all. I taught myself. And I'm like most of my customers. They saw their their parents and, and grandparents gardening, but never learned themselves. And then these people, they've, they've moved to Tokyo and they found me promoting it. And, they thought, and it's triggered something in their memories, I'm sure, of seeing their grandparents and their, and their parents gardening. And they thought, I saw my dad doing that when I was a, a boy. And it, it sort of rekindles the interest. It's pretty amazing. It's like a link to the past. That's awesome. And and Chuck, I know you've had a lot of success uh, bringing people who might be hesitant to start their own even community garden or their own garden because they just lack that confidence. And then they spend a, a day or half day with you and then they're more confident to start growing their own food. Is that right? Well, I have actually that's something that I'm trying to start this year, more of an, an education program or a training program, if you will. Until now, it's been mostly volunteers who are dedicated to helping out, helping my project. Not really. And I mean, of course, they're going to take some of that knowledge home with them. But um, I don't think that's usually the main motivation. And then events like you can see there, people just come out for, you know, they play on the farm a bit. We have a campfire with roasted marshmallows or something Then swim in the river or go on a hike or something. So I do a lot of stuff like that. But I'm hoping to move more into, like I said, more of a formal program where people can learn how to do it for themselves. And I'm actually start starting a garden slash farmer consultation service um, that I think people are, you know, who do want to get started 
it's hard to, to get over that initial hump. You know, that first year is a real learning curve. First of all, John and I have spoken about this. You go to the home center and it's just like, oh, I'm a bit overwhelmed now. You know, like what seeds should I buy? What container if I'm going that way or soil amendments or, you know, all these other things. What do I need? You know, and you end up just grabbing a few things like, oh, there's a tomato plant. Here's a thing in a bag of soil ready to go. And then you all put it all in and you put it on the wrong side of the house. So it dies or the insects kill it or you didn't water it or whatever. And then you fail and you feel like, oh, well, that's just going to sit in the corner for 12 years until it actually the plastic just disintegrates because I don't want to see that anymore because it failed. You know, it's like I hate I hate it when people have that horrible experience and it just turns them right off. I mean, it's just like a pet. I try to tell people it's like you can't buy a cat and then just lock it in your house. You know, you've got to feed the cat and love the cat and take care of the cat, clean up after the cat, make a relationship with it, kind of synchronize yourself with it. And something John was touching on is when people get involved with a cat or a house plant, it's a, it's a very meaningful experience. But when you get involved with something that you're producing that then you put into your body, that relationship just goes to the next level because suddenly what you're producing is giving you the energy to keep producing it. And you feel a part of this very small circle of sustainability that's directly impacting your life, the environment and everything around you and allowing you to continue doing that. There's nothing in your way. You're not going to work to pay the bills, to go shopping, to pay somebody to cook your food and all this. No, it's like I grew a carrot. I ate the carrot. I grew a carrot. I ate a carrot. This whole small circle like I'm talking about is the most profound thing I've ever found in farming because suddenly I feel like, yes, this is what sustainability is like. And you get, you want to get better at growing that carrot. And then you learn, oh my gosh, these, uh, these peas did, didn't do very well, but this one pea plant, it made it. I'm going to save that, dry it and plant those peas next year, because you know what? That is now genetically superior. And I, it's proven itself that in this environment where I'm growing it, it's going to live. It's going to produce peas. And suddenly after five years, you're producing just mega peas because you have selectively bred those peas to grow in your precise environment. I mean, the next guy over, it might not work for the next town over the next city over or over in America. It may not be that particular pea, but in this area, you know, and suddenly you realize, wow, that's the importance of seeds. That's the importance of vegetables and production and uh, sustainability. Sure. Well, let's let's talk about seeds a little bit because John has this great graphic um, showing the diversity that you can get. A normal supermarket, you might get one choice of cucumber, but if you go to the DIY center, you'll find ten different kinds of cucumber seeds. Um, so, I think a lot of things that stump people is getting started with seeds. Um, any tricks of the trade you guys could share? What's the best way to get started with seeds? For me, it's it's really about um, if you're just going to try to get started, I would say don't get seeds, get transplants, because honestly, starting a seed is a real skill set and it's a lot of trial and error. And, you know, 
they're the weak, they're infants, you know, they're, they're little tiny babies in, in incubators, you know, they're going to die if you just make one little mistake or if one insect comes along, just nips it right off. So having a transplant that's already a, a teenager, you know, to put that in the ground is going to really give you a, a, a head start. So I hate to say that. I don't want to say to everybody, you should buy transplants. It's better. Just for first starting out, it's really going to get you uh, on track, I think. But as John and I have already spoken about with our uh, our collaborative efforts and what I'm going to talk about in my consulting uh, sessions is as soon as you get a transplant, if, there, if there's a plant growing, hold it like this up to the light so you can look under the leaf to see if there's aphids, spider mites, or anything else, any sort of diseases or rust or any sort of problem with that plant before you put that in your basket. Because otherwise you're just, you're just bringing home a disaster. It's just going to, it's going to fail. So I, I, I buy hundreds of transplants every year and I am looking at them on the, in the home center people pass me by like what the heck is he doing and but the people who come up like oh yeah i know what he's doing he's looking for caterpillars so they, there's some there is a learning curve with whatever you do but seeds are a learning curve so if you're going to go for seeds be in it to win it because you're going to have to prove yourself with the seeds yeah. i think and that looking for insects and picking off the insects yourself by hand um, is something I hear from organic farmers in the series so often. Um, the Hive and Barrow, that was a really funny story. They're an organic farm in Chiba. And she said they had a local Japanese TV company come and do a, a feature on them. And she didn't even think about it. She reached out and just smashed the big bug on camera and they're like i don't think we can show that and she's like but well, this is a really important part of organic farming you we're not right. using chemicals right, right. <laughs> well i have volunteers who are so you know altruistic and they actually pick the caterpillars off and run them off the farm and deposit them on a tree or something like that i'm like okay i just squish them <laughs> it's much easier <laughs> uh uh john anything to add about the seeds to sprouts yeah, uh, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I think, um, like Chuck was saying before, it's uh, uh, it's uh, um, quite important actually um, um, to make the um, the food growing experience a, a um, good one from the start, so that people don't get put off the whole process. And um, what I've um, found personally is um, uh, and basically getting people um, just to grow uh, baby leaf seeds first, and um, 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 these baby leaf seeds, they can be grown within about uh, 12 to 14 um, days from seed, so they're really, really quick to grow. And there's some, uh, there's basically three or four key points to, uh, to growing seeds successfully. Um, one, you've got to read the back of the packet and find out and um, check the seed sowing uh, season. In spring, which starts here in Japan next month, we can grow pretty much anything. So you can basically start growing from seed uh, from uh, like approximately the middle of, of March. But you've got to check that you're growing in-season seeds. Number two, you've got to use uh, general-purpose soil. And if you're here in Japan and you can't read kanji, but you uh, are checking out bags of soil in a home center or garden center, just check um, check the pictures that are on the packet of soil. If it shows some food and flowers, that's um, general-purpose soil. Um, you can buy that. Number three, and probably the... And the biggest mistake that people make when they're um, sowing seeds for the first time 
is they sprinkle seeds on the soil, but they put too much soil on top of it. They might put like one inch or maybe two inches of soil on top of the seeds. That's way too much. All you need, and the most important number in gardening is one centimeter. And that's basically your fingertip like that, just the tip of your finger. That's how much, that's the maximum amount of soil that you should be putting on top of your seeds. And, and you can put less, you can put one or two centimeters just to cover the seeds, but no more than one centimeter of soil goes on top of your seeds. And then make sure that you put the seeds in, in the sunniest place possible. So just look outside, find where the sun shines most, put most of your pots there and your containers there, and then make sure that you water them regularly. Those points are pretty much um, gonna um, guarantee that your seeds will um, will grow first time. Um, yeah, so yeah. it's important. That's really good advice. Yeah. And yeah. and to Chuck's point earlier about every garden is going to be a little bit different uh, depending on your sunlight and everything, right? Um, and your personal uh, ability to water regularly or weed. Yeah. Um, well, that yeah. I I have tried uh, just in an area that's quite sunny just trying different seeds in one area that I think has potential and seeing what grows and then trying more of that one that seemed to work. And the ones that don't work, I give up on and yeah. go buy some sprouts, right? Well, that's a really good point. Um, something uh, that I sort of teach my clients is to basically um, just do more of what works. So if you find that you can grow tomatoes in, um, down one um, um, side of your balcony, but they don't grow very well down the other end. Just um, just um, find out what grows best where and then just keep doing that. And if something doesn't work really well, like you might start growing uh, like a spinach and it looks really sad, looks sort of pretty droopy, move it to somewhere else where it might get some more sunshine or maybe less sunshine if it's during summertime. And just like, sort of move things around and find out what works best where. And then once you find out what grows best where, just keep doing it more. It's really simple. You basically just learn from experience. And that's what experience is all about. You learn what doesn't work. And the things that don't work and the mistakes that you make, they should be teaching you what to do next time so that you'll um, basically be more successful and grow more food. And that doesn't take too long. Um, yeah, it, that's it great advice. The path of least resistance and yeah. learn along the way. Reassess and uh, make new plans, right? It's all about finding sustainability. It's the same. Uh, we got some great questions here. Uh, Lori has said, soil amendments always stump me too. So talking about uh, taking care of your soil is a bit tricky. Yeah, um, what, she, what she's probably talking about is, compacted um, or, as John was saying there, um, you buy the bag of soil, which is basically potting soil that John's talking about if you're growing in containers. Um, but you can also put it in the ground, I suppose. But um, it's probably not going to have enough food or, or fertility in it to really feed your plants to become really big, healthy, and strong. Or at least at the most, it'll be just one season of growth. And then you're going to have to put something in it, which would be an amendment, which is uh, another word for fertilizer. But also there's amendments like perlite, which will lighten your soil and some compost, which will kind of hold water and add micronutrients and, and microorganisms. So there's a lot of kinds of amendments out there. And don't feel bad that you're 
you know, a bit lost. I'm also a bit lost, and I'm sure John also feels lost sometimes with what is the correct thing to do here, and should I be adding animal manures, should I be adding this chemical and calcium and all this other stuff. And I mean, there's whole courses in universities, years of study to go into really understanding all those things. So I say start simple, start basic. Remember, it's NP, I'm sorry, NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. Those are the three key elements for most plants to need. And, and in the fertilizer, it'll be written in that order. And if you're growing something green and leafy, you want high N. If you're growing something with lots of fruits like tomatoes or something like that or flowers, you don't want a high N. So there's, there's something to learn there uh, to, to, to help feed your plants. But I'd say whatever you do, do it in moderation. Okay, whatever soil amendment you go for, don't add a whole bunch. Just a little bit is enough because you can always add more. The first thing you can do is mix it into your potting soil or into your beds. And that, that's, that's really effective. But then later on, you see like, huh, those plants are getting pretty big. I want to give them another feeding. Well, you can't mix the soil again because the roots are in there, but you can do a top dressing, which is just sprinkle it around there so that that'll eventually go into the soil and become a part of the plant's food, food system. So I'd say with any sort of amendments, go easy on it. And this is my number one tool on the farm most of the time. Google, tell me what to do. I don't know if you know what's this bug or can I use this camera? How far do I space these things? I mean, I am on my phone all the time just trying because I can't keep all the information in my head. That's what that's for. So use technology to your advantage in moderation. And as John said, any failure is not a failure. It's just another way of learning what not to do. Right. When things don't work, it's another learning opportunity, right? <laughs> and now honestly, I listened to this great podcast. Um, <clears throat> actually, it's a radio show podcast from the States. Uh, you Bet Your Garden. I love Mike McGrath. He's hilarious. He's very knowledgeable. And it's a call-in show as well as kind of a special feature show. So it's got a lot of elements. And the website is also fantastic with all these questions and answers. Anyway, he always says, you know, if you get 60 or 70 percent production out of your plants, like, I mean, 30 or 40 of them percent die, you are you are doing great. I mean, a professional farmer would be over the moon with those numbers. So just remember, nobody's at 100 percent. Yeah, good, good advice. And Heather uh, Fukase from uh, Nagano Naturally, she listens to podcasts when she's out on the farm too. So I think that's a way to keep you learning, keep you motivated, um, learn trial and error along the way, try things you want to eat, those kinds of things. Heather's uh, great. great. We're eating her apples right now. So Oh, awesome. A great question from C. Dobbins on YouTube. Are there government and or academic organizations or agencies in Japan that offer assistance for gardening like university extension offices in the United States? Well, he mentions JA. I assume that's a he might be a she. Sorry about that. Um, JA. <clears throat> John, I'll let you handle this one. I don't have a great image of GA myself. So. so I think in general, we could say, and this is from all the interviews I've done in the series with organic farmers, there's not a lot of support um, from government organizations or big agriculture organizations for or organic farming. 
for universities. Because they were mentioning the university extension offices too, yeah. That's why we need you guys doing what you're doing and promoting grow your own food from many different motivations. Do it naturally. Do it for your health. Do it for food security. You guys are coming at it um, in the right way, I think, to create momentum, create motivation. Um, Hopefully... What you're doing from the grassroots level will have an effect on policy. But at the moment, it's pretty frustrating, right? Yeah, I think that one of the main services that uh, the university extension offices in the States, and I'm sure in other countries as well, offer is soil tests to find out what is my soil lacking. Oh, it's low in magnesium or boron or something like this, one of these trace minerals that are important to plants. And, it, and I think unless you are a registered member of JA, you cannot get those services, but you can get them if you are registered. Cause my mother-in-law was a farmer uh, and she had told me that she could get them. And at one point I gave her a bag of my soil. I was like, could you get this tested? And I don't think it was ever able to be done, but um, so those things are possible. It's just, I don't, I, I don't think they're easily easy to access as they are in the States. So. Right. Uh, one, one way that I think might make change quickly is if we can get more mandatory composting around mm. Japan, then mm. we're going to see more support and collaboration with farmers in the city, outside the city, everywhere. Uh, Kamikatsu is the only place I know of in Japan that has mandatory 100% composting. But whenever I talk with government policymakers, I always suggest it. Let's do composting on a mandatory level. And they're all for it because it would save a lot of fossil fuels for all the garbage trucks that have to pick up all the garbage. For us personally, we reduced our waste by 30% immediately. Um, I think there's a lot of fossil fuel carbon cuts you could make, which is part of the SDG 2030 targets, if we just encourage composting. Yeah, plus it keeps the crows off your garbage bags. It would help a lot. It would keep recycling cleaner, so it would have higher value in the chain. There's so many positive knock-on effects. And there's such How, an amazing effect yeah. of compost on your plants when they grow. It's it's really it's really amazing. It it really strengthens the plant. It's it's hard to describe. It's like a, a healthy gut biome, you know, full of good bacteria to help you break down that food. That in the soil, I, I, I liken the soil to our gut. It's like when that's a good, healthy environment, we're healthy and the plants are healthy. So it's yeah. something that a lot of people don't talk about because it's not fertility. It's this microcosm in the soil, this this little city of, of microorganisms going at it that creates this wonderful, vibrant soil environment for, for plants to grow in. They can be really strong and fight off their own diseases, communicate with each other if there's mycorrhizae present. It's an amazing thing below the soil. And it would really put to use some of the food waste problems that we're having. Um, John, you work with a lot of schools and universities. I'm, I'm really hopeful that the schools and universities are going to be the first groups to start reutilizing some of the waste from the, the kitchens and the, the cafeterias and making that into composting as part of education for kids learning about farming. Wouldn't that be great? I think what I'm pushing with the um, the uh, schools that I've been teaching at, because um, most of them now they have their own kitchens, and um, the kitchens basically and they purchase food to make um, to make dishes, and then they throw the waste away. And what I'm basically pushing uh, from this um, this year to started is to basically work with the kitchens to 
um, to use their food waste <clears throat> and compost it and uh, so that the kids that I teach how to grow food can use the compost for um, uh, produce from the kitchen food waste to put onto the garden to grow more food for the kitchen to use. So it's like, uh, like creating this whole cycle. And uh, yeah, so um, the kids will be, um, they'll be um, able to clearly see that the food that they grow, um, um, some of that's going to be composted to produce um, 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 compost um, they can sort of put back on into their garden. Um, I was sort of thinking much bigger than that. <clears throat> um, when it comes to rooftop gardens in cities, uh, as a way to uh, to boost um, uh, um, self sufficiency, and one of the key questions is, and um, where's the soil going to come from to uh, take up onto the top of like of um, office blocks and and schools to use to make gardens? And I think the simple um, solution to that is to have a community-wide composting system where there's like one or two large uh, silos set up to produce compost where people and um, where um, food waste gets picked up from people's houses and from restaurants and cafes, that kind of thing, all gets taken to these big composting silos that produce compost on a continual basis. And the compost gets basically given away with um, this is my plan, basically, to have these um, these composting silos um, giving away free compost and sponsored planter boxes and flower pots to people that want to grow food at home, so that they can basically go to these compost silos and get the, the containers that they need and the soil made from compost, take it home and 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 start growing food. And so, like you said, Joy, about how um, composting cuts down your food waste by thirty percent, it does. It makes a huge difference. You don't throw the stuff away. You just reuse it and make soil, which is great to grow food. So I think if 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 large scale composting can be set up in cities, it can basically feed itself and produce a soil that can be used to make raised gardens, rooftop gardens, and and used by people that want it to grow their own food, which is going to improve um, self sufficiency and do all these great things. It, Absolutely. Makes, it makes too much sense. It's, it just yeah. too, it makes too much sense. I don't know why this stuff hasn't been doing, isn't happening. Right? right and we have great examples. Like we see it at work in Kamikatsu, working really well. We see it in cities like San Francisco. They have 100% composting. Mm. Uh, they have curbside pickup of the composting. They reutilize <laughs> the composting. It's broken down in big machines. They give it to California wine growers. Mm. It, produces beautiful wine which is great branding for the whole area so there's so many great knock-on effects i i really hope you guys can push the bill yeah yeah i know in shiga prefecture otsu city has a not mandatory but optional composting program and if evidently if you if you give them your compo compostable stuff they compost it and then they come back and they give you a bag of finished compost uh john theory i don't know if you've had him on the program Who's that? John Speary. Yes, yes, okay, yes. Yeah. He, he's the one who told me about it. He lives out there. And he says yeah. he gets a bag of compost every, every couple months <clears throat> and put on his garden, and he feels really good about it. And then people yeah. who use animals on the farm, like uh, Thomas Kleffer at Pitchfork Farms, uh, if I give him a big thing of my compost that it's not breaking down in my garden, uh, he gives it to his animals first, and mm. then it's it, it's the animal machine that makes it into compost for the soil, right? <laughs> yeah. 
And funny enough, I'm, I'm going to start a worm bin this year uh, for the first time. Um, I've been thinking about it for a long time. And now my son's 11 and he does a kind of a science project every summer with me. And this year we're going to do worm bins. And I think that's a great <clears throat> urban model for composting because Bokashi, the Japanese way using uh, anaerobic bacteria is wonderful, but boy, does it stink. And your neighbors do not like that or your wife doesn't like that either. So, you know, then you can take it out somewhere and compost it in a big bin mixed with browns, you know, the natural process, but that takes a very long time. And animals are attracted to it, rats and cockroaches and things like that, crows. You have to keep it well sealed. But this worm bin seems like maybe it's going to be a good fit for a citywide composting because it's contained. You know, it has to have air holes, but, you know, except for very small insects that nothing can get in. And then they just turn it over. And then these worms are really great to put into your garden, to feed to the fish or, or your chickens or or just to drop in the soil somewhere. And then the, the finished product is just gold for your soil some some scientists say it is the best plant food there is ever made <coughs> the worm castings so john is, have some yeah. of your your clients uh, been using worms in the city areas oh uh um oh um it's been to quite a few people who um they basically contacted me and said oh um where can i buy some worms so i can start worm um, worm composting and the answers to basically just to uh, look um, online um, that's apparently the best uh, one of the most convenient ways to buy worms but um, getting back to what Chuck said about the um, the bokashi uh, which is basically uh, it's a um, a, a um, Japanese method to produce fermented compost um, I've got a, a, a bokashi maker myself at the back of the house and it works like a dream it's just like a um, like a plastic rubbish bin uh, type uh, container and you just sort of dump your food waste in and it's got a tightly sealing lid which keeps all the smells in so my neighbors never complain about it and when it uh, fills up which takes just a matter of days uh, to fill up this rubbish bin size bokashi maker you basically uh, wait about three months and then um, there's a tap down the bottom and if the process works properly this really dark brown highly concentrated liquid compost or sometimes called uh, compost tea comes out of, of this tap down the bottom and all you do is you just got to um, dilute some of it in your watering container and pour it straight onto your plants so it's the easiest way to feed your plants you don't have to um, um, get a spade to um, dig in solid compost to your soil you just pour the stuff on and it's it's the easiest kind of compost to make and because it's in liquid form it's really simple to use so um yeah it's is a good idea and yeah it doesn't smell um just you just got to make sure that you put the lid back on tightly but you can have it outside on your balcony and you won't even smell it yourself so yeah, yeah we we've had two uh very uh enthusiastic mm amazing home gardeners, Flo and Blaze, and they, they use that uh, to make the liquid compost. They actually have two bins and they swear by it as a way to use yeah. that liquid compost to really grow great veg. Um, I'm just adding, Chuck has a link for worms, which I'm adding to the chat here. Um, we just have about 10 minutes left. I want to talk about how people can get in touch with you guys and projects you guys have coming up. In addition to consulting, Chuck, you have a film festival. Do you want to talk about that just a minute? 
Sure, that, that's just a, a side project I'm doing to promote sustainability across Japan and the world, is giving people with small initiatives, startups, or even larger ones, the opportunity to have a film created and join our screening um, so that we can help spread the word and, and we can promote that project and other people can learn about you and maybe help out or plug in, or you could learn about other projects that you'd like to plug into. Um, so I'm hopeful that a lot of people will get on board with this. We're looking for people who can help create and edit the films as well as people with these projects. So if anybody knows uh, about this, um, I'll put the website up in the, in the uh, chat in a minute. Or I think actually I shared it with you, Joy, privately. Maybe you could put that up. I just put point. it up. Oh, thank you. So that's yeah. our SOS Green Screening uh, website. And you, can, you can apply there. You can contact me and the team as well. Um, as many projects as we can get up there, um, we're hoping to do it. John, you're welcome to do one as well. Um, I think that the more people get an opportunity uh, to see these sorts of things, not only will they be able to plug into you, but they'll feel inspired to do something themselves. So, yeah. Yeah. And John, you have some great consulting work coming up with schools. Uh, you also do virtual workshops for people learning um, how to grow their own food, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Um, the COVID crisis basically sort of um, uh, uh, drove myself, like many people, to to consider how to provide services online. So I can provide, I can basically um, um, teach people worldwide now um, how to grow their own food. I've got about twenty different lessons that I can teach from basically. Um, the simple stuff like sowing seeds and transplanting seedlings to uh, teaching people how to set up a, a balcony garden, um, grow food on walls, on walls, sorry, um, set up rooftop gardens, grow sprouts, you name it. Um, yeah, so I can basically train people online. They don't even need to leave the house now. That's good. And for people living in Tokyo and Japan, I can advise on where they can buy the equipment that they need to grow food. Um, yeah, basically, and what they need and where to buy it from. Um, just quickly, another um, um, plan that I'm going to be uh, taking further this year is called uh, Food Havens, which is an initiative where I'm basically working largely with schools, but but want to start working with offices in Tokyo, and to basically go in there and set up a rooftop garden for them, or a garden on some space that they have, and then basically have I've got. Um, the Food Havens basically focuses on a four-word strategy, which is um, grow some, give some. So the plan is to encourage as many schools and offices to grow their own food and donate some of, some of that food to a local food, um, food bank or community support um, organization so that we can basically provide safe, chemical-free, healthy food for free to people that need it in the city. And my plan is to basically get hundreds of schools and hopefully thousands of corporate businesses in the same city and flood the food banks with free food and completely take out urban hunger issues. And then transplant that model to Osaka, to Kyoto, where you are, to Shanghai, to Beijing, to Malaysia, to London, to Auckland, to Singapore, everywhere. It's such a simple strategy, um, grow some, give some, um, to basically spread the good word and spread the good food to people that need it uh, worldwide. And I love I've that. shown that works here in Tokyo. I just want to expand it. 
So it's not it's not just and I I showed your your photo working here with Second Harvest, such a great organization which is helping people who are food insecure. But having fresh food, fresh organic food mm -hmm. available for people who are food insecure, um, free that's well. a it's game changer. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Well, right? I, um, I think with um, Second Harvest is that uh, most of the food that they get given from um, from wedding halls and from supermarkets and so on is um it's it's often um uh damaged packaging and like a box of cans that might have been dropped or it's coming close to the expiry date but most of it's packaged and processed which means that it most likely contains chemicals um i started supplying second harvest japan with fresh fruit that doesn't contain chemicals and I want to really, really ramp up that supply and get more schools and companies to basically provide free food to, to Second Harvest Food Bank so that the people who need the food, who go to Second Harvest to get it, are going to be getting good food that's going to support their, and their personal health and their families. And that's not going to have a can or a packet or a carton that gets thrown away. Yeah. And that's what I, I love about that idea you introduced, John, about uh, in the future, wouldn't it be great if supermarkets were oh. growing their own food on the roof and then you have that that ease of transport from yeah, the yeah. farm to where people buy their food and you have you knock out that need for plastic packaging, too, because yeah, yeah. why not have reusable containers in that case? You don't need it. right? Yeah, well, um, we've got a, a great comment here. Uh, from Ginkgo says, I'll be working in Japan once the border opens. Yay, fingers crossed for you. I hope I can visit the farms in the near future. Fantastic. So I think this is a way that people can reach out to you guys and get in touch about urban workshops if you're living in a city, country or garden workshops if you're working in the countryside. Go and visit your farms. You guys can show them in person if it's safe to do so. Um, there's so much great work you guys are doing. It's so wonderful to have you together with yeah. covering the cities and covering the Inaka. You guys can cover everything, right? <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. So we just have two more minutes. John, if people wanted to get in touch with you, what's the easiest way? Through Facebook? <laughs> Uh, oh yeah, um, through Facebook, yeah. Um, John Walsh, yep, uh, yep. That's the best way to find me. Um, you'll find that my Facebook page is just loaded up with uh, with um, posts about urban food. Yep, um, I'm more than happy to help people that want to grow because I think um, that if I can help people to start learning how to grow food and make the fewest mistakes when they do so, then they'll be motivated to continue to continue, and they'll hopefully be and be motivated too to teach their kids and their families and their friends. So what I'm sort of really and want to get into is to motivate people to teach downwards to the younger generation, outwards to their own generation, and upwards to their older generation, and basically to get people motivated to teach everyone they know to grow food at home or at school or at work, and just do really, really good things for their personal health, for the community, and for the planet, because it's so important now. Yeah, fantastic. Um, last question from C. Dobbins. Uh, do either of you have any contacts in other countries? So, for example, in Korea or China, wouldn't that be exciting uh, to have that, an international well, network? Yeah. 
it'll be, be, be sort of um, really, really good because Chuck and I, uh, Chuck's in Kyoto, I'm in Tokyo, and we sort of got in touch last year and we've been sort of chatting quite regularly about what, what we do. It'll be wonderful to be doing exactly the, the same thing with farmers in other countries and find out what's working for them and what's not working for them. For example, the rainy season in the, these last two years in Korea, it's been really, really, it's been like twice as long. And it's it's things like that where in the rainy season here last year was was one week or one or two weeks longer than it normally is. It caused massive problems on Japanese farms in Korea. And the rainy season there last year was one month longer than usual. Huge impact. And it's it's things like that. It's um, things like that that are happening around the world. If they're communicated, we can all learn and hopefully adapt so that our own food production activities don't get too severely impacted. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. the, the strongest argument I've heard recently for growing your own food is because where does Japan import foods most from is America and China. Mm. And those two <laughs> countries are going to start to need more of their food for their own populations. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. we need to be supporting all farmers yeah. in Japan more, especially if you're doing organic farming. So please... <laughs> Folks who are listening, support your local farmers wherever you are. Any final words from you two? Thank you so much. I'm afraid I have to go, but uh, yeah. contact me on Facebook as well at Chuck Kayser or Midori Farm. Plus, I have midorifarm.net is my website, uh, Japanese or English. And um, I hope, like everybody here has said, that you can take it to heart that growing organic food and producing and consuming that food is the best way to be sustainable. It is the closest you can be to being truly sustainable. Mm. So best of luck to everybody to give it a shot. Wonderful. Thank you so much. John, any final word? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, just that if you really want to make a big difference in the community and and for planetary health, there's, there's probably not much more. Um, um, uh, probably the best way to do it is to basically uh, start sowing seeds. These can have so much impact. Um, to, to sort of buy um, uh, growing foods without um, growing food without chemicals, you can impact your own health. You can impact your f family's health, and by teaching those skills, you can impact community health. And by not using chemicals, then you won't be poisoning the soil, and that has a huge uh, positive impact in itself. So if you really want to make a difference in for the planet and for our future, learn how to grow food yourself. And the great thing about doing this, um, like about growing food, is that you don't need a, a mission statement or a glossy sustainability brochure to do it or to start it. You just need these and some soil and a pot and that's it. And just yeah, keep just, doing it. It's thank so you simple. guys so much. Absolutely. Everybody go grow something. Have a good day. Take care. Bye. Won't you see? Won't you see? I'll take your pain, just let me through. Worry, baby, I love you. Don't be afraid to tell me the truth.
classroom I show my tears to you I'm stronger I drop the armor now I'm